I know that you're a big Oscar guy. Obviously. The Grouch is what we're talking about. It's also my middle name. Mm -hmm. Daniel Oscar. Okay, so it's Oscar season. They made the lists came out. I know everyone here cares about that a whole bunch because we're all camera nerds. And we're going to talk about the one category that matters here, which is cinematography. And I feel like uh, that I haven't, one, I haven't seen all these movies, so I can't really say, but I think they missed the mark on the cinematography nominations. So the nominations this year, which just let me know if you've seen any of these movies. All Quiet on the Western Front. No. Okay. I did watch that one and I was really bored the whole time. Sorry. Bardo False Chronicle. I didn't even know that was a movie. Yeah. I haven't heard of that one either. Elvis. I didn't know that was a movie. That one has Tom Hanks in it. Okay. It's very... Have you seen that one? Style. I have not. It's just so long. It's like two and a half hours long. Oh, it's like half as long as Avatar. Empire of Light. Nope. I have it under good authority. The only reason that one's on the list is because of Roger Deakin. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't seen it. I did see 1917. Yes. And I do love Roger Deakin. He has a really cool podcast. Anyways, last one, Tar. Is, is, is that a movie? Yeah. It stars Kate Blanchett. 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 Anyways, it stars Kate Blanchett. But Jesus, I said it wrong again. It stars Kate Blanchett. <laughs> okay. And she's a music director, conductor, person, and it's on my letterbox. Okay. But also, I don't know if that's really like a cinematography type thing. Okay. What I'm mad about is that the Batman didn't make the list for cinematography. I mean- You've you've been into Batman for a long time, so I'm feeling a little bit of bias okay. here. It's not just that it's a Batman movie, but they specifically they shot that on Cook lenses, Cook anamorphic lenses, where they had the lenses detuned so that they look insane. I do think I remember hearing something about that. I'm pretty, pretty sure it's because I talk about yeah, it. Yeah, probably so. But like they shot it on these Cook lenses and they detuned them, and so they had to shoot everything center focused. And usually, like you're kind of one third, two third in anamorphics because it's so wide. Mm-hmm. But they basically center shot most of the movie. On these wide anamorphics and the edges are all crazy mm-hmm. because they detuned the lenses. And then when they were done, they printed it onto film and then they scanned the film. <laughs> and they use like a like a color negative thing so that the like the colors came out a certain way. It's it was just insane. It's definitely a different process than what most movies do. Well, yeah, for sure. It was very, very stylized. Mm-hmm. And to me, the cinematography in that was it was landmark. It was just so special because of all the cool things that they did. Yeah. Not even nominated. Yeah. It's like you want to at least see that effort rewarded or recognized in some way. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious to see people, more people do interesting things like that. I mean, yeah. you don't always have to shoot like the cleanest image. Yeah. I mean, most movies are, they're, they're stylized in some sort of way and they have some sort of grade on them that have a certain look. And I felt like the Batman should have been nominated for cinematography and I'm mad about it. Yeah. Yeah, I I think you're you're not the only person who feels that way. I'm pretty sure I saw other people on Twitter upset, which means that the whole world's upset. Yeah, checks out. Everyone's mad about it, and this is just a big miss by the Oscar community. And I think we can all agree that uh, it's, it's we can't trust trust anything that they vote on this year. Yeah, because just, because just they can't got trust it wrong. any of it. Yep. So that that was it. That's Lucas's Oscar corner, uh, <laughs> our one once a year segment where we talk about the cinematography for the Oscars. All right. So this is how not with it I am. But I mean, have they voted? Like, is it? It's nominations now. Okay. And then they're going to vote. And then there's going to be a ceremony. And then Will Smith is going to punch somebody. Uh, we can only and, hope. And then they're going to yeah. give They're going to give out Did uh, he do awards. that at the Oscars? Was that a year ago? I don't remember if it was the Oscars or not. Uh, but it was It was basically a year ago. It was wow. awards season, which is somewhere between March and, and May. So not quite a year. 
Wow. Time flies. It sure does. Kind of like Will Smith's fists. <laughs> Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're back today to talk more about the gear we use for photo and video. So Lucas, I know that you've been talking a lot about NDs lately, and I think you have a new ND filter. Do you want to talk about that? I do. So I've been I've been looking for an ND, right? And I still can't decide if I want a fixed ND or a variable ND. And I don't know how much I needed until just now. Well, not like just now, not, but I recently... Yeah, not, not like five minutes ago. But. Recently acquired a new ND filter. It's a variable ND filter. Mm-hmm. And as you well know, like fixed NDs are better better optically, right? You're not going to have as much color shift. You're not mixing polarizers, so you're not going to get any weird X patterns. It's going to be uniform, darker. But then you lose the flexibility. I mean, for, for photo, you know, fixed ND makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but you for, just change your shutter speed. Yeah, for video, it's... It really helps to have that third level of exposure if you're not able to change your shutter. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and this is something that kind of recently hit both of us because F-Log 2 requires you to shoot at 1250 ISO. Right. And we've shot some things recently that are in bright sunlight and just could not get the exposure to work. Yeah. I mean, like the, how bright it is when you shoot an F-Log 2, I don't think can be understated. And that's kind of what we're going to get to here is like... Just, just how many stops of ND you need <laughs> in order to shoot F-Log 2 outside. Yeah. It is it is so bright. I mean, I can't shoot with my light on over 20% indoors with F-Log. Yeah, it's crazy. Unless I'm shooting at like F5.6. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. Just that 1250 is so bright. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking at variable NDs. And I'm looking at like the nomadic, not nomadic, geez, Polar Pro, Peter McKinnon deal. Uh, look at Moment has a variable ND, uh, mm. B, B plus W, and geez. Uh, I mean, I looked at like the Tiffin one and then like obviously the cheapo, like K and F and that sort yeah. of thing. And we both have a cheaper variable ND now. Mine, I think, is made by K and F. Who's, who's yours made by? K and F. So like we both have the exact same variable ND for 52 millimeters. And we use those on the comparison video that I just shot. Which was I did a whole thing on the on the autofocus change, like the right. 3.0 firmware for uh, XH2S, and that's going to come out later. Right. Um. Anyways, so whenever I was color grading that, because we shot an F log, we had to crank those variable NDs to maximum. Mm-hmm. And because variable NDs are basically two circular polarizers, you know, turned against each other at a different angle. Like if you turn two circular polarizers to 90, it's going to go black. Right. But the problem with variable NDs is that if you go too far towards it, or you know, too far and deeded you get like crossing it's not a uniform you know light yeah. reduction you get these like weird things and you can also get like color shifting mm-hmm. and that was a problem i had with those knf ones is they're both exposed but one the my shirt was like purple and then the other one the shirt is is, is black and just trying to color match that was a yeah. nightmare <laughs> because it's not like you just have a magenta tint on it it's like part of it, part of the image is tinted yeah, one color. It, it and it changes across the frame. Yeah. yeah. So like correcting with a variable ND is awful. Mm-hmm. So you just, uh, the point is most cheap variable NDs, if you're spending less than $150 on a variable ND, then you're you like, you can't, you can't take it to full. It may say this is good for one to seven stops. Mm-hmm. It's really good for like one and a half to four or five stops. Right. And you just, you got to know, like, don't turn it past this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so- one of the advantages of something like the Polar Pro one is that you can turn it, like if you turn it to five, it stops and it has hard stops on it. 
And so I found one that I purchased, and I'm going to hand it to you now. <laughs> I cannot tell you what the brand is because I can't read it. It is Haida Haida. That's definitely going to be a check the show notes for that one. Yeah, for sure. As you can see, it has stop markers on it. Yep. It goes from one and a half to five. I do and whenever see that. you turn it all the way to five, it stops. Yep. And so you can't turn it into the cross pattern color shift bad area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. It's not necessarily that filters like this are better. I mean, they are better, but part of it is just that they don't let you get to the extremes that a cheaper mm-hmm. one does. I think that the Moment one and the Polar Pro one are indeed better optically. I haven't fully tested this one for that, but I haven't found any X patterns and any sort of color shift seems so far like it doesn't change as you change the amount of ND. So if I set the white balance, I think it will be fine. I'm going to do a little more testing, but overall I've been relatively happy with how this one works. So this one, 67 millimeter was like $55. And so for me, like of all the the filters I've tried and I don't own a $250 Polar Pro filter, I think this is a pretty good compromise. Like if you're not mm-hmm. going to shell out for a, like a 72 or an 87 millimeter, like really, really good one. This so far, this one seems seems decent. Yeah, it looks pretty good. And I think it, it looks like it's the right size to where you can still use your original lens cap. It is exactly the same size yeah. as the 67 on it. And it fits perfectly with my lens cap. That That is a huge plus because that's one problem I've had with variable NDs in the past. It's like, you know, I have a lens at 67 and then now suddenly I need just like a slightly larger lens cap and that's and super you, frustrating. Or you can't use your lens hood with it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, the way, like the NDs don't have the same coatings on them. Mm-hmm. And so you could all of a sudden get sun streaks or something that would get washed out if you hit the sun. And so if you can't fit your fil- your uh, lens hood over it, what are you yeah, going to do? Big problem. Yeah. So this, like the size of it's great. The hard stops on it are nice and it seems pretty decent. Good to know. I, I've been interested in getting a better variable ND and I've been tempted to get one of the really expensive ones. But one of the problems I've had with that idea is that a lot of times it seems like there's two ranges. You know, it's like you can get a like two to five and a six to nine or something like that. And I haven't known what I needed necessarily. And so even if I wanted to spend a lot on a variable ND, that would be one thing that would drive me to get a cheaper one is just because like then I could learn what I needed. That is one of the reasons I bought this instead of spending the extra money on I was looking at used, but I was going to potentially buy a used Moment or Polar Pro for whatever, $150, $200 and just be done with it. I'm like, this is, I got the one, I'm going to use step up rings, but I didn't know how much ND I needed. Yeah. And before we we dive into that, which I think is kind of the interesting part of this conversation, this specific filter comes in two different versions. There's this version, and then there's a one with an integrated circular polarizer. I think I saw that. And isn't that one more expensive? It's a little more expensive, but basically because this is already a polarizer, you can kind of, you can just turn, Mm. you can turn where it is on your lens as far as like its orientation. And so then you can get the polarization for your landscapes in addition to the neutral density. But I mean, I wouldn't necessarily need that or want that for video. It's kind of cool that that's an option if you're getting it for photo. Sure. Okay, so I've shot a little bit today and it's not super sunny outside. It's a little cloudy, a little rainy, but it's daytime. I'm shooting at, you know, F 2.8 ISO 1250. Which lens are you using? I was using the 70 to 70. If we have time, I want to talk talk about that because I feel like I use that lens for everything and it makes me mad. I mean, get into it. (laughs) What do you you got? (laughs) I... I don't know. I, I, this is this is such an aside, but I shot an event last night. I shot shot at a dance last night, and I have this fancy Fuji fifty to one forty. You know, really expensive, really good lens. 
seems like the perfect thing for that kind of situation. It's, you know, it's like the Fuji version of the seven or the 70 to 200. And the only lens I actually used the whole night was the 17 to 70 because that lens is just such an ideal range. It has OIS. It's, it's just a really good all around everything lens, but I just don't like it that much. Like it has some, it has some wide angle distortion. It has that problem where if you point it up toward the sky, it will zoom itself out. And I don't know, it's just, it, I, I don't want to like that lens as much as I do, but I just end up using it for everything. It's painfully versatile. One of the problems that I have with it, one of the biggest problems I have with it, is if you shoot, shoot under 20 millimeters and you have IBIS on, you get vignetting in the corners and it moves. And you can see it shift, the sensors shift around yeah. the image circle. Not and good. it can it can ruin some shots. You have to, you, you'll have to crop in. Mm-hmm. And Well, and I often try to not, especially on photos, but I guess I need to do it on video too. I try to shoot it at least 24 because at 17, if you if you pull those pictures into Lightroom, at 17, you have a lot of distortion. Yeah, there's and a pin cushion's pretty bad at mm-hmm. 72. It's it's like the usable, the real like best optical usable range of that lens is 20 to 60. But at the same time, if I'm shooting video, that distortion is a lot less noticeable for one thing. And it's just such a versatile range. Like I, I mean, everything I was shooting last night, I was using the whole range of that lens and it was perfect for what I needed, but I just, I don't know. It just, just bugs me a little bit. That is, that is really frustrating because you, you have faster lenses and you have optically better lenses. Yeah. Like if you were shooting at the long range, that 50 to 140, it feels like that would have been way better for what yeah. you were shooting. Yeah. But the problem was like, you know, you're, you're moving around trying to get a bunch of different shots and maybe you want to get a long shot, but then something happens really close to you and you want to be able to get a wide shot. And what do you need for that? 17 to 70. <laughs> oh boy. It's like you're coming around to what everyone always said was just like, why are you buying a bunch of primes? Just get the 24 to 70 yeah, that, and be done with it. That is exactly how I feel. That's frustrating. Yeah. Anyway, back I, to the NDs. No, I took that lens today to the farmer's market to like take some pictures and test out my ND filter to see how well it works and how good it is. And I was like, I want to take my 30 millimeter because that's a good like walk around lens. But I also want to take my 80 millimeter because I could take like macro shots and then portrait shots. And like, that's a cool, like you can do closer far. So that would be neat. But... I guess I could take like a 70 and 70 because that one's a little more versatile. And, and I'm what like, are you, what are you going to do? You're going to have like a bandolier of lenses? I, mean, I know. It's like, I only need one lens. Yeah. And so I'm like, the right lens to take in this situation is the 17 to 70, but I don't want to take it because I don't like that lens because it's like the thing, the, the, the lens doesn't stay in whenever you like tilt it up and out. And it's really, really long. And like, just all the reasons for that I don't like that lens, but it's like the perfect lens I just feel for like half of everything. We are both cursed with having a lens that we don't really like, but then we still use it for everything uh, what's up with that it's weird it's it's really frustrating and like i've considered swapping it out for you know like the 16 to 55 you know 2.8 fuji lens but it's not optically stabilized yeah that's a and problem like 55 to 70 is still a decent jump it's not crazy but it's a decent jump mm-hmm. and if i want to use it on the xt3 i sure would like to have that lens stabilization yeah, yeah. Uh, i share your frustration okay point is what were we even talking about okay i'm shooting at 2.8 yeah f log 2 which is ISO 1250. I'm outside on a cloudy day, not even direct sunlight. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I, how many stops do you think I had to set this 1.5 to 5 filter on in order to in order to expose properly? 2.8 on cloudy day. I'm betting you had to set it to 4. I had to put a three-stop ND filter on my camera and then set this to 4. <laughs> so you had to go all the way to 7, basically. Yes. 
I had to go to seven stops of ND, and it's not even daytime outside. Or it's daytime, but it's not even sunny outside. It's ridiculous. If you were buying a fixed ND, would that be an ND one? I had an ND one twenty eight. Well, no, it's it's an ND eight. It was a because it's two to the third, so it's an it's an ND eight. Well, that's what the fixed one was. But if you add the oh yeah yeah, if you had a, a seven stops on that, yeah, it would be a whatever one twenty eight or something. Yeah, ND one twenty eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Yeah, and so much. It's like in order to actually use F-Log 2 in, you know, any sort of like well-lit scenario, like studio lighting outside, mm-hmm. you basically have to put at least six stops of ND on top of it. <laughs> so and much. If, if you want to shoot wide open. Yeah. I, was, I shot at, you know, ND 5 F 5.6, which is a totally reasonable, you know, if I was shooting like something like a, like a sh- film short or whatever, and I wanted that appropriate depth of field for, you know, the right look. I'd probably shoot at around F4, F5. So that's about right. But like, I wanted to see, you know, can I shoot? I want to be able to shoot wide open. So I need something that has that much, you know, darkening capability. Sure. Yeah. And so what I learned today is like, if you're, if you're using Fuji and you're going to shoot an F-Log 2, you need a variable ND that starts at six stops. Yeah. Because I mean, you could put that six stop on there. And if you're in a slightly darker situation, or if you want to shoot at a slightly, you know, higher aperture number, you could crank up your ISO a little bit, right? Like you could, Get your ISO to 1600 or... Yeah, you're not really going to notice any noise bump. Yeah. Going up to 1600, 2000. So it almost seems like going with a little bit more, you know, higher ND than you need, you can compensate with ISO. Whereas Mm -hmm. like if you don't have enough, you just don't have enough. Yeah, you're going to have to crank your shutter or crank your F-stop. And Mm -hmm. if you want that load up the field, you're just not going to get it. Yeah. I was surprised, but that was why I bought this cheaper one. Because I wanted to know like, how many stops do I actually need? And the answer is frustratingly you need six to 10 stops of ND. <laughs> so much. <laughs> that is so much ND. And I'm like, like digging into this and I started kind of getting on my high horse about this whole situation. So I want to talk about full frame cameras. The argument for full frame is one, less noise, right? You know, you can shoot at lower ISO or whatever. But mm-hmm. if you're shooting, if you're shooting video, and I'm talking about just video, you're going to, like most of these APS-C cameras have as much, if not more, dynamic range than a full-frame camera. And if you're shooting on something like an X-H2S, you know, I'm using six stops plus of ND in order to even just shoot it. If it was full-frame, I'm like, how am I even going to use this outside? <laughs> People are like, oh, I want to shoot f1.2 on my full-frame lens outside. And, oh, but don't don't forget that you got to shoot an S-Cine log, whatever, and, you know. Well, but, but do all those full-frame um, log profiles require such a high ISO? Well, I think you're going to shoot at, like, a base ISO of maybe 640 or something, mm-hmm. which is that's going to be one and a half stops lower. Yeah. But that, that basically, it compensates for the, the change from APS-C to full-frame. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, to me, in current modern cameras, at least for the camera I'm using, I don't really see the benefit of like, do I do I need all that extra light to go from APS-C to full frame mm-hmm. if I'm already having to like tamp down the amount of visible light yeah. that I have with these ND filters? Mm-hmm. And so I don't see that benefit of it. And then there's the argument of like, well, I just need that full frame look. And, you know, I just I, I wanted to look cinematic and all this stuff. And that's my if like you think about all the movies that have been shot and like everything that was shot on film and like what we grew up with, basically everything that was shot on 35 millimeter from 1950 to 1999 was shot sideways on 35 millimeter, which means it was shot at about 24 millimeters by 16 millimeters, which is APS-C. And some of the wider ones, you know, that might shoot at like super 35, 
which is like two millimeters wider. But basically like the film, the size of film and the size of movies and like studio film is super 35. It is APS-C. And so when you're thinking about like, what does this millimeter length look? And I want it to look cinematic and I want to have the, you know, the same angle or depth of field or whatever. I mean, APS-C is is like the closest you're going to get to cinematic. And if you go and you start shooting on, you know, high end stuff like a like a large format camera, like you're going to shoot on an Arri Alexa or whatever, an LF, large format is full frame. And so it's it's like it's bigger than what you would consider a full frame in like academy scope. And like this is where it just drives me nuts cuz like the people on the YouTubes or like you got it, they're 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 coming from the photography world where like full frame is a big deal for photo mm-hmm. and like 35 millimeter not sideways is photo and is you know the way film started and all this sort of thing and I get it but shooting photo and shooting video is just so different and like ugh, I don't know it just frustrates me because I feel like it's just it's so out of context and I've been watching way too much YouTube lately I guess and the whole argument of like you know you, you need this full frame look and like this is the most cinematic way and you get all this extra light and blah 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 and I'm like well I don't need the extra light and if I want it to look cinematic, I'm going to shoot Super 35 mm-hmm. and blah, 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 blah. Well, first off, I do think the reason you need extra light is not when you're shooting on a bright, sunny day, but if you're shooting indoors or in a dark situation. Sure. Right? Like, that's that's where the full frame thing makes sense. But I do agree with you. I mean, we talked about this a little bit in the past about how YouTube has maybe influenced things in a way that is a little not representative of how people actually use cameras. Mm-hmm. Like. People watch YouTube videos and they learn what YouTubers like, but that doesn't necessarily tell them everything people like. Right. And I think that specifically back when the Canon 5D Mark II came out, it was kind of the first DSLR that could really do video well. And I think a lot of photographers that wanted to get into YouTube picked up on that and started making YouTube channels. And it was kind of the first time that consumers were able to get really nice looking video on YouTube. You could get stuff that was low depth of field and just had better colors and better quality than, you know, whatever flip cameras and stuff people were using at the time. So I think that has had kind of a lasting impact on how people perceive how people that watch YouTube videos perceive good quality, because like you kind of said, I mean, a lot of movies were made on Super 35. And the other thing is that a lot of movies don't really use low depth of field shots very often. I mean, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you were having trouble shooting types of shots you wanted to get, but that if you went to F5.6, it was fine. The thing is, if you watch a lot of movies, most of the shots are like F4, F5.6. And it's kind of like the YouTube look to have, you know, F1.4 or even less. Yeah, that's that's like a a stylized look. Yeah, and like that's a benefit to full frames, being able to get lower depth of field. And, you know, same thing with like the super wide angle shots. I mean, it just just feels like all this stuff is like a YouTube look that has been celebrated and that a lot of people want to emulate. And it's, it's just a different world than cinematography. Yeah, I mean, I just... I don't know why it irks me so much. Maybe it's because I'm like feeling defensive about not having a full frame camera. <laughs> uh, I did learn that the the show House was shot on a Canon 5D. Really? Yeah. Huh. I thought that was really interesting. That is interesting. But I I just I don't know. I guess it surprises me that things like like a an Arri Alexa large format is quite literally a 35 millimeter mm-hmm. sensor, and it's not anything you know significantly larger than what you're what you're getting in your your a7r5 or whatever and i guess like the whole full frame thing is photo like the photo world 
weaseling its way into like the video world mm-hmm. and just like the marrying of the two has like caused this sensor size war yeah and like at the end of the day it doesn't really matter like you use what you can use and you can use what you can afford and like what matches i guess what you're shooting mm-hmm. i mean uh, wes anderson he'll shoot on some some smaller format in order to get a certain amount of grain and other other cinematographers will do that as well they'll think about like what does like, what is the look I want? Do I want something that doesn't, that has this really wide, huge view and I'm going to shoot on IMAX? Or do I want to shoot on 16 millimeter because I want grain the size of pebbles and I want it to look, you know, uh, classic in that way. Mm-hmm. And they make the decisions in that way instead of just saying it has to be full frame. And boy, I sure like my, my C70, but man, if only it was full frame, I just, I really need that extra size. And it's like, well, actually, I mean, this is, this is more traditional as as it is, I mean, mm. do you do you really need to slap a speed booster on there? And do you really need it to be full frame? Yeah. Not to mention, then you're taking on larger lenses, more expensive gear overall. There's some downsides to it too. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I get I get get irked about it. I mean, obviously, we're not talking about shooting micro four thirds. We can all agree that that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's way too small. Oh, geez, it's just so tiny. Who would ever? Who would ever? <laughs> Kidding. Uh, but. I don't know. I feel like, you know, if you shooting super 35 shooting full frame, it's like you got to let you got to let the the art decide what tools you're going to use and not like, you know, pick it, pick a camp just for it, it to be. You know, oh, I'm cool. I have, I have a full frame like this is professional. I guess that that's the part that like drives me insane. It's like, oh, well, in order to be professional, you have to shoot full frame. Yeah, of the noise or whatever. definitely not true. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, I mean, it depends on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It really depends on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. My version of getting irked about that is just that I feel like everybody watches YouTubers and watches YouTubers review cameras and then treats that as like, this is the gold standard and this is what I should go for. And that's just not the way it works. Yeah. It's that plus like, oh, you know, how to shoot cinematic and what is, here's how you get this film look. And you're like, man, like you, you haven't shot a, you haven't shot a film before. (laughs) This is a look and it is a film look because it's a film now, but I don't know. Jeez. I just... I get so frustrated by a lot of the discourse around all this. And I did not expect today that when I was testing my ND filter to go down a full frame, <laughs> isn't the real deal rabbit hole kind of thing. And I'm like, you know what? Real full frame is, is 26 millimeters by 16 millimeters. Cause that's super 35. Blah, 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 blah. And here we are. Yeah. I'm, I'm basically doing the same thing that full frame people do to APSC people. Yeah. But the other way around. Yep. Yep. Get your, get your full frame crap out of here. I'm using I'm using the real the real 35 millimeter. <laughs> Jeez, spoken like a true Fuji user. <laughs> they don't, think, even, they you, don't even have classic chrome, Daniel. You think your camera's film look? <laughs> you know you have film simulations. <laughs> oh boy, we should talk about something else. I actually wanted to ask you on the ND thing why you decided to go with a normal circular variable ND filter rather than a matte box. Because matte box filters are so expensive. Is there not a cheap version? I mean, like you can get a matte box for 50 bucks sure. used or whatever. Because they're not really that expensive. Like if you get a good circular ND, it's going to cost you 50 to to $100. And if you go out and buy five 5.56 by 5.56 NDs that are going to go into a matte box of that size... They're like $100 each. If you go and grab something that has more stops, like two or three stops kind of thing, those are $150 at the the cheap end. Yeah. You're going to spend like $1,000 just on filters for a matte box. I guess the one advantage you get is that it's not specific to a certain lens size, right? So like you're you're not buying like a 72 millimeter matte box. Yeah. I mean, if I wanted to be taken seriously... I, I would 
I would I would get a map box mm-hmm. and I would put it on a Super 35 camera. If you're doing paid work, showing up with that map box is probably going to pay for itself on the first job. Oh, for sure. They would they would immediately raise your rate and just give yeah. you more money. Yeah, they would just start throwing hundreds at mm-hmm. you. They're like, oh, I didn't realize you were going to bring professional gear. I kind of agree. It's appealing in the sense that it looks cool and it feels like it's probably optically better quality than a variable ND, but... Just in terms of practicality, if I'm going to go out to the park and shoot something, I don't want to have to mess with that. I don't want to clamp this huge thing on the end of my camera and be trying to like figure out what the light is and slide the right number of filters in. Like I just want to be able to stick something on and go. Yeah, and like that's kind of the other the other piece of it is whenever you're using a mat mat box and you're using those you know square glass NDs, you're basically using fixed fixed yeah. ND. Mm-hmm. You can stack them. And you can stack them easier because, like, I've I've stacked circular NDs before, but you basically can only go so far before you, get, like, you start getting, yeah, before you start getting vignetting. Versus, mm-hmm. you know, this where it's it's a lot wider. You can you can stack as many as you need in order to get your exposure. But it, you then have to pl- like you're planning the scene. You have the lighting, you have the talent, and you you've set it. Mm-hmm. But if you're running gunning or you're just you know setting up a YouTube thing or you're doing something easy or simple and you don't have time to like how many stops of whatever do I need and I have a whole team with me and blah 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 it's just it just kind of becomes a pain yeah and you almost would rather just have a good like a actual good variable ND that you mm-hmm. can just oh I turned it from one to five and now I'm set yep well I'm curious to see what you think after you get a chance to look at some of your footage on the computer but I mean it'd be great if that one you got ends up being good and if you feel like you can spend 50 to 100 bucks and get something that's not going to have all the color shifting and that weirdness I mean that that seems like a good middle ground at least it's just so far I would say I'm I'm happy with this it's worth the 50 dollars uh, even I've only looked at it through a camera lens. I haven't pulled up onto the computer, but to me, it seems like this was worth the money as far as what it is. And it seems like the best in this price bracket for $55. I mean, like something that just has hard stops on it. Sure. Not hard stops at every one, but like at the front and the back. Yeah. So like to me, it seems worth it. But what I'm going to end up probably doing is buying a Moment or a Polar Pro that's a 629 stop. Okay. Okay. So you do think you'll spend more money now that you kind of know what range you need? Yeah. Cause I would like, I would like a 72 millimeter size and then just, you know, step up to it for everything. Cause then I could use it on current lenses and any future Fuji stuff that I buy. Sure. And, you know, I'll have this one in case I need to throw it on like the X-T3 or something if I'm doing two cameras. Mm-hmm. And so it just yeah, it makes to, sense. Yeah. It, it makes sense. And, you know, if I'm just having going to have one filter, I would like it to be as nice as I can get it because dealing with the color shifting in this last video that I did was, it was a nightmare. It was just yeah. terrible. Do you think you'd go with a used filter? You mentioned that briefly. Earlier. Yeah. I'm, I'm 100% going to buy a used filter. I'm not going to, I mean, it would obviously you run the risk of it being scratched or something, but usually like camera people are, are fairly good about, you know, their gear. And I feel like I could find a used one and save $50. Yeah. I mean, I found some, used moment filters for like a hundred bucks and those things go for 180 200 oh, uh, yeah, yeah so 50 bucks i think is my point where i'd, I'd start thinking maybe i just want to buy the new one but i mean if you're saving 7500 bucks that that is significant yeah so this kind of depends but i would strongly consider buying a used one just to kind of save, save the cash nice I think the advantage of getting something like the Polar Pro is it does come with its own bespoke cap and that sort of thing. Mm, and it has a decent yeah. carrying case. Yeah. But I don't know. Would you, if you bought a fancy pants variable ND, would you put it into like your little ND kit case? Or would you keep it in its own like special metal whatever case that's not going to get broken? I mean, my little ND case is pretty durable. I, I think I'd just put it in there. I'm, I'm not really worried. It would have to be a pretty severe situation for anything to get broken. 
in the little padded case I have. Mm-hmm. And the advantage to me is that most of my, I would, I would only want to have to buy one size, obviously. And I mean, I've got a couple of lenses that I would need step up rings for. And so with the ND case, I can have those step up rings in that case and just be able to pull out what I need. So I think I'd probably use the case I have. Man, could you imagine a situation where you had a bunch of really cool NDs and, or not NDs, but cool filters, like maybe you had a Promis and, you know, this fancy variable ND and like maybe something else. That filter case could have like $500 of just filters in it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a lot of eggs in one basket. Yeah. Did you you think about that? I didn't think about that, but sometimes I kind of have some some dread whenever I think about how expensive just holding my camera with one lens is. You know, I've got this $2,500 camera and I've got a $1,000 lens on it. That's a lot of money that I'm just kind of holding with one hand and walking around with. I sure hope these uh, Peak Design little strap yeah. strap dongles don't break. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope this $20 Peak Design strap I bought actually holds up. You know, it's... it's uh... No, I, I, think those, I think those little eyelet, those Peak Design, what do they, they even call them? Hmm... Well, like those quick release tags. Yeah, I know right? what you mean. I still don't know what it's called. They seem they seem pretty reliable, yeah. and they're like if you see like they have the the red thread in them. So like if you have if you have those public announcement, I guess if you have those and you see the red underneath the black, you got to replace it. Yep. Because you do not want that thing to break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that that system is great, and I yep. I do trust it. But it's just funny to trust it with how expensive the gear is. They had a failure on the second gen version. It was like one in a thousand Mm -hmm. didn't hold up. And so they replaced them for free. They're like, this is what it looks like. If you have one, just send it in. We'll send you another one. Yeah. Yeah. So really nice. Mm -hmm. Good old peak design. Yeah. Good old peak design. All right. I think we've covered that ND topic in about all the detail we need to. Yeah. Yeah, What else we got today? I thought about a little bit about talking about codecs on the Fuji cameras since this is FujiCast. Yes. And we've been talking about the XH2S and filters and yes. Super 35 being the only real formula. Anyways, so shooting shooting on Fuji. Whenever I was with the X with the XT3, the XT4, you know, you could you can set your data rate and you can set your frame rate and, and how you're gonna shoot. Like you you it gives you like a three-tier menu mm-hmm. and you go in and you're you know, I'm gonna shoot 4K 60 or 4K 24 or 1080 30 29.97. And then you pick, do you want to shoot all high, long GOP, 420, 422. You can pick that version, and then it lets you pick a data rate. And sometimes it'll cap it low, but you can shoot 4K, 422, or 420 10-bit from 50 megabits per second all the way up to like 600 kind of thing, depending upon the yeah, camera. I think and, it capped out at 400 on the X-T3, but and, still. And that that really surprised me whenever I got Fuji, because that, that's not how the GH5 was, my Panasonic camera. With that one, you know, you were picking your frame rate and resolution, and you were picking between all I and long GOP. You know, those were like discrete settings. But then it was kind of just like you were picking from presets, because you would pick one of those things, and then it would it would just say, like, factually, if you pick this frame rate, this resolution, and all I, it is going to be this data rate. And it's just so, like 360 or something. Yeah, like whatever, whatever it was, you know, two, 200, 360, whatever Or if it was. it's a Sony camera, it's just 50. Yeah, it's always just 50. Those are easy. But I mean, I almost don't like that Fuji gives me that many options because I feel like I have to learn what what is an appropriate data rate. Because, you know, you I, I always want to get enough to get good detail, but I don't want to have these enormous files and be dealing with these 100 gig video files. And so I just never know, like, what is the right one to pick? And I feel like the only way it is knowable is to just try it and see what happens and that's just i wish they just had presets yeah it would be nice i mean this goes across the board for a lot of Fuji stuff is 
you know, it would be nice if there was a little more hints or something mm-hmm. in the settings to give you an idea of like what to use when. Like just put a little asterisk next to the one that's like, this is the recommended bitrate. And then if you yeah. want to let me set it lower or higher because I know better and I want to do that, then cool. But like, right. like just tell me what I should use. Mm-hmm. So that's why I kind of wanted to talk about this is, you know, there's a lot of options in these cameras. And I'm kind of curious, you know, when mm. you think what is the right bitrate and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, why, why do you have options first? And it comes down to, you know, the codec compression, right? If you're shooting an H.264, H.265, whenever you're not shooting an all-eye, like if you shoot, if you set it to all-eye in a Fuji camera, it's going to hard set you. So like if you put it in all-eye, you're not going to be able to shoot below 320 in like some modes, 400, more maybe higher Mm -hmm. in other modes. Yep. And basically what that, what it is, is like for long GOP, it is, it's diffing the frames. And depending upon how complex the difference is between the frames, can impact like how much data it's going to take. And so whenever you shoot in like 50 megabits per second, it is doing a lot more compression. Mm-hmm. And so if you plan on doing a lot of color grading or you have a lot of like a lot of fine movements, like say you're filming leafy trees. Yeah, or like confetti or something. Yeah, or confetti, something like that. You're going to have a real hard time if you use 50 megabits per second. Yeah. But if you're shooting a talking head and like the only difference between the frame is like the person slightly moving and them talking and blinking and that sort of stuff, you're probably fine at 50 megabits all day, especially if you're not shooting in log. So we know that long GOP, which is the diffing frames and all eye, we know that there's a big difference between those in how well the computer can handle the footage, right? Because like in all eye, it has all the information. The computer's not needing to decompress the data. So, you know, that that should be a little bit better on editing performance. But how does the bitrate affect it? Because if I if I'm shooting in long GOP, if I shoot in 50 versus 200, you just said that 50 is compressing it more, but does that mean that it's harder for the computer to actually process that data? Yes, definitely. So, I mean, it, it has to decode it, right? And so it has to generate the frames between the frames as you're working in it. And so if you shoot in long GOP, it's just going to be harder to edit. Well, well yeah, but like if I shoot in long GOP 50 megabit uh-huh. versus long GOP 200 megabit, does that make a difference? That's what I'm asking. That's a really good question. I I honestly don't know. I haven't like A, B tested yeah. it. That the would only, be really interesting to try to see what happens. I, I've noticed a big difference between shooting, you know, like ProRes or all I versus shooting long GOP. Sure. Yeah. And, that, and I would expect that. That's, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, we know that that, we know that's the case, but I'm just, I guess I'm curious if the bit rate itself has an impact. I think some of it comes down to maybe sometimes the size of the footage, like depending upon how much RAM you have, it's going to have to load Mm. a lot of that into the RAM and process. And so if it's just a larger file that can can impact it some, but also, you know, a lot of it comes down to how compressed it is. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking to see what it caps the all. So like for all I for H.265. It's minimum 360, I think. You basically can do 360 or 720. Yeah. And it doesn't is a huge range. Yeah, it's like one or the other, and it doesn't really give you a rhyme or reason as to why. Like I yeah. don't, I understand what all I is, and then the whole like every frame is every frame, but I don't know what the difference is between. 360 and 720 all i there's just so many variables too because the other day i needed to shoot something at 4k 120 and i remember i asked you if you if you had any experience with that so that i could know what bitrate i needed and there's just so many variables because maybe i maybe i learned that i like the way 200 megabit looks for 4k 60 but then if i'm shooting 4k 120 i don't know what effect that has i mean it's obviously more data but it's like is is 200 still enough? Do I need to go to 360? Is that enough? I just, like, I just don't know. Finding out which one you need and knowing how is this whole exercise. 
like you have to have a screen that's of that resolution. Like you got to pull up a 4K screen mm-hmm. and then like look at it pixel to pixel and then, you know, maybe pull it into something like Resolve and push it around and see. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it just, may depend on like the scene too. Like, is it going to be different if you're in an area with a lot of shadows versus an area that doesn't have that? Is it different if you're shooting F-log versus not? I mean, it's just, there's, there's a lot of variables here. It's, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really frustrating and it's so hard to know. And basically what I've come down to is like, if you're shooting on a Fuji camera that doesn't have a CF Express card in it, it's going to cap out at 400 or so megabits per second yeah. just because of E60 cards and that sort of thing. You might be able to push it to 480, but I haven't seen like what the X-T5 and the X-H2 settings are. So what I've settled on is like if I'm just, you know, shooting to have the video and I don't really care about how compressed it is, I'm not if I'm not going to edit it, if I'm, I'm never ever going to pull it into Final Cut or DaVinci Resolve, I'll shoot. I used to shoot like 1080, 50. And if I shoot 4K, I'll shoot 4K 100, 100 megabits per second. And then after the fact, I may compress it mm-hmm. to save the file. Like I'm just like, oh, this is just a home video. I just, you know, I'll, I'll compress it a little bit to save disk space. But that's usually what I'll shoot. If I'm shooting for something I'm going to edit, the minimum that I'll shoot for 4K is 200 megabits per second. Yeah. And I'll shoot maybe a little higher if I'm going to shoot 420 versus 422. Because like you're getting that more more chroma subsampling, so you probably you probably need more data rate. So you're saying for four two two, you shoot higher. Yeah, I probably shoot two hundred or three sixty. Okay, makes sense. When I shoot six K, if I'm shooting like six K twenty four, I'll shoot like either two hundred or three sixty as well. Mm-hmm. Anytime I shoot sixty frames per second, because like I'll just I just double the data rate offhand because I'm like double the frames, double the data rate it should be roughly similar quality. That's not actually totally it's true. Hard to say because, like, if you shoot if you shoot 240, 1080, it looks like garbage no matter what <laughs> data rate you use. Well, no, I was going to say something different. Like, if you're shooting long GOP and it's diffing the frames, if I have double the frames, there's less of a difference between each frame. Oh, geez, that's totally true. Right. So maybe you don't have to double it. Yeah. So it's it's just it's frustrating because you just can't you can't really tell until you start pushing it. But if yeah. you're in a situation where you need to push the footage, you just don't know. And it's like it's so much testing because there's so many different configurations. This is one thing that's that the reason this frustrates me is because I feel like it's an area where if I want to be really effective with the camera, I have to know it inside and out. Like I have to have done all that testing or done all that research. And I just don't want to have to do that. Yeah, it would be nice if they just kind of told you. I mean, they give you all the options. Like it feels like Fuji should know. Yeah. And I guess so like that's what I kind of want to talk about is like some of my experience. So when shooting 6K422 or shooting 4K422, 200 to 360 megabits per second, depending upon what you're shooting, like how much movement is in it, is it talking head, is it outside, is it like what is it? Is going to I'm going to pick one or one or the other basically. Mm-hmm. And I find that most of the time I can do whatever color grading I need to in order to make it work. I can do noise reduction and I can kind of pull up the shadows, pull down the highlights and I can get that final result. If I run into a situation where say we used a really crappy variable ND and like it's color shifting just awful and I have to do like a lot of white balance fixing and I have to you know do a lot of hue changes or I got to get into like the color warper and DaVinci Resolve, 360 is not enough. Really? Like, it, I can I can get it there, but I basically stretched for this last video, I stretched the footage as far as I could. Mm-hmm. And like it, it did start falling apart. Like the skies are starting to get blocky yeah. and like it just can't 
it can't quite get to where I want. So the, the footage doesn't match. It's it's close, but it straight up doesn't match. I wish there was a an option between 360 and 720 because that just feels like 720 sounds extreme to me. Can you not shoot four? Is 400 not an option? I don't think so. I think it's 360 or 720. Well, I do I do have an XH2S oh. right oh. here. Oh, that's convenient. Con- conveniently. Just happen to have a camera right there. Yeah. So let's look at uh four. This, this is really good radio. Um, so I'm going to look at, I'm just going to look at 4k at, um, the Lord's frame rate, which is uh, 24, even uh, 24, 3.97 garbage. Yeah. I mean, it's 720. Yeah. It just jumps straight to 720. You can't shoot 400. <laughs> it's just a massive jump. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine ever needing to shoot 720 unless I was shooting ProRes. It's nice that it gives you the option, but like, I don't know what the option's for. Yeah. Yeah. Like what is the situation where that's actually helping you out? I mean, I don't even know if well, get- in, in your situation that you just talked about, for one thing, how do you know you're going to need that? But even so, like, I wonder if even at 720, if you would have had enough data to do that. I think the answer. So one, I don't, I don't know. I would think that probably, but I have never tested it because I never shoot in 720. Yeah. But what I did find is like, if you're in a situation where you know, like, man, if something went wrong and I'm going to have to push this footage, you're just going to shoot raw. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not. I'm like, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even go to 720. I would pull out the ninja and I would shoot raw mm-hmm. if I was that worried about it. Yeah. Uh, but. It seems like there, like there is a limit to what you can get out of the 360 codec. And if you, man, like if you really, really need to grade it, or you're going for a very heavy, a heavy look, and you're going to do a lot with the footage, I, I guess maybe 720 is helpful. I probably should test that out, but I don't know. It's 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 frustrating with Fuji. And basically, the answer is choose between 200 and 360. Unless you just don't, you yeah. can just ride the compression and then you can run it down to 50 I mean, or 150, for, 100. For me, I'm always shooting at 200 unless I can't. Like if I have to shoot higher, right. I will, but I don't really shoot a whole lot of home videos, I guess. And I mean, if I'm shooting something, I want to shoot it in 4K because I feel like 20 years from now, everybody's going to have 16K screens and my 1080 footage can be a little postage stamp. So, you know, even if I'm just making some, making memories for myself, I want them to be in 4K. And I guess I just feel like hard drive space is cheap enough and these cards are big enough that most of the time I can shoot at 200 and not running out of space. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. And maybe that's maybe this is helpful enough for the Fuji shooters out there. They kind of see what we're doing and Mm. maybe realize that everyone's everyone's struggling with this. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe some people are just shooting F log two, four, two, two, 10 bit at seven twenty all the time. And, then, so. and that's it. Yeah. Or they're probably just setting it to ProRes and then shooting 10 minutes and then changing the card yeah, out. Yeah. So a couple other questions. Uh, you can shoot four, two, oh, or four, two, two on Fuji cameras, which I think is also something that was new to me. Cause I'm pretty sure on the GH five, I GH5 GH5 did. Oh, it did have, four no, it had it, but, but four, two, two and 10 bit were tied together. So it was like, you could either shoot four, two, oh, eight bit, or you could shoot four, two, two, 10 bit. And you couldn't pick those things independently. So I'm curious when you shoot, I, I know you shoot in 10 bit, but do you shoot four, two, oh, or four, two, two. So I used to shoot an eight bit because my computer couldn't, ha- didn't have an HEVC decoder and just straight up couldn't handle it. <laughs> that was and a 2016 MacBook pro. Yeah, it yeah. was, it sure was. But now, now with, you know, whatever Apple processor world and all those decoders, I, I essentially only shoot in 10 bit because man, like if I'm ever going to write, like it just, it looks so much better. Yeah. At 10 bit, I, I think in a blind test, I would be able to pick out 10 bit every time. Yeah. And especially if you're shooting log, I think you basically have to shoot 10 bit. That's what annoys me about my iPhone. Like one of the reasons I switched from Android to iPhone was because I wanted to be able to shoot some, like I wanted another video camera in my life. And whenever we shot the Big Ben thing, I did that behind the scenes video that people can go watch on YouTube. And a lot of that was just straight up on my iPhone. Mm -hmm. But if you want to shoot in 10 bit on an iPhone, you have to shoot in HDR. You can't shoot in SDR in 8 bit. And I think that's really stupid. (laughs) Point is, 
I will I I shoot four two two ten bit on my XH2S exclusively. I don't think I ever shoot in four two zero because I I mean I bought the camera to shoot yeah in F log two and I bought the camera to shoot in four two two and like even if I'm being a little you know just kind of casually shooting. I'll I'll still shoot in four two two. Yeah, just because it's it's like the full frame thing. It's like I can't re- I probably can't really tell the difference, especially if I'm not going to grade the footage. But in my heart, I know I'm shooting four two two, and so I know it's better. Yeah, well, and, and like you said, you know, you, you spend a lot of money on a good camera with high specs. You want to use those specs. Yep. So so it would be interesting to know if like the four two zero I can just get away with. Mm-hmm. If I like really really don't care and I'm just shooting video to shoot video and like I'm not going to use it for anything. Sure, 4K, 420, long GOP, 50 megabits per second. It would be interesting to to try and figure out what type of scene would really draw out the difference between 420 and 422 and do some testing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know what it would be because 10-bit is where it comes down to the banding, right? Of like mm. how many you know, how much gradient can you get? And then it's even better if you shoot in F-log because you're shooting a Rec 2020 instead of Rec 709. But for the chroma subsampling, I mean, that comes down to like per pixel, yeah. you know, noise, right? It's like how, like if you took a picture and if you were shooting like macro or something and you had something that had a really fine pattern to it, that it wasn't so fine that you were going to get more, <laughs> which is like, that's, I mean, that's, that's a level of, of difference, yeah. right? It's like, we're talking, you know, you have four pixels next to each other and then they're helping each other to determine what color they're going to be. Yeah. And 444 would be, you know, every pixel is its own thing. And then 422 is like these two are the same and then these two are independent. I forget exactly how it breaks down. It does seem like mm. it's it macro kind of makes sense. It seems like anything that has small color changes very close together. Right. Like one idea I thought of is like a glittery dress. You know, something like that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it would just be interesting to try and figure yeah. out something that would actually show it and then take two videos side by side and see whether you can actually tell. So something that's not a pattern, but is a lot of interchanging colors. What I would yeah. think, I'm just thinking like a flower or sure. like yeah. fur maybe mm-hmm. on like an animal or, yeah. or whatever hair that's like not uniformly colored, yeah. not like jet back or whatever. But, yep. you know, something like that where it's, that's yeah. probably where you would see it. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting to try. Yeah. Last question, long GOP versus all I, what do you normally shoot? I almost always shoot long GOP because just because of the compression, I feel more comfortable shooting at 200 megabits in long GOP versus if I'm shooting all I, I know I need extra data per frame. I mean, the camera won't let you shoot. It uh, won't let you shoot below 360 in all I. So I shoot, I need, you know, I still have a one terabyte hard drive in my computer. I don't have infinite disk space. You're not made of money. Right, exactly. So like... I shoot in long GOP for that reason. Yeah. But if I'm shooting a project where I know I'm going to pull it into resolve and I'm going to do color grading and I'm going to use, I'm going to work the footage, boy, I will, sh- I will shoot um, all eye for that. Okay. So it's like situationally when you know you're going to be doing a lot of color work. Right. But if I know that I'm just going to cut it all together and do like a simple grade, I mean, mm-hmm. long GOP, it, it just comes down to computer performance. Yeah. And I mean, the M1s and the M2s are so fast that it's like, you're not really suffering that much. And if I was having a problem with it, I would just transcode it to ProRes. So mm. I think that all makes sense. I'm pretty much in the same boat. I normally shoot 10-bit 422. And like I said, I almost always shoot 200 uh, and normally long GOP. I, 
I haven't hit too many problems where I felt like the computer is struggling with the footage, so I haven't needed all eye much. I have. I I mean, I've got, I've gotten into where like some of the 360, even the all eye stuff in H.265 is can it can make the computer chug if mm-hmm. you're not if you're trying to play back in full res and you've cut it a lot and you haven't rendered the footage down to something simpler than HEVC. Yeah. So like you can definitely make it chug with that stuff. Good to know. But and then I obviously we talked about shooting even shooting in 360 and then if you have a heavy grade it does fall apart mm-hmm. so like there is reason to shoot higher if you if you need yeah. it but that's yeah. what pros is for and i mean this kind of feeds into uh something that i've noticed with the switch to resolve and that's whenever i was shooting or whenever i was using final cut and you're you're familiar with this final cut will re-render basically everything you do mm-hmm. like it'll leave some things in the original codec but if you cut it or you add an effect or you add a transition, it's going to re-render that to ProRes, LT, HQ, whatever you've set it to. Yeah, you set it in the project. And so those render files get huge. Yeah, you can, I mean, that can be hundreds of gigs. Hundreds of gigs. And I remember whenever I was using Premiere, which was 2013 is the last time I heavily used Premiere. I used to edit like church videos and stuff. And that was like a weekly thing. I was in Premiere every week. Mm -hmm. And that did the same thing. I was like, how come, where's, where did, where did I lose that 300 gigs of hard drive space? And it's like, oh, it's this render library for Premiere. Shoot. In using DaVinci Resolve, it doesn't do that. Like, <laughs> well, how does it work then? By default, it doesn't render, mm-hmm. but you can set it to smart render, you can set it to user render, and then you can choose to render things out. Yeah. Whereas, like, if you have effects, you can render those things so that they play back. Mm-hmm. But, I think it just uses things in the original codec unless it really has to render it. And I had this 20 minute timeline with, and I I have nine tracks on it, which are like titles and different videos and like all this stuff. And I'm like, just smart render. And I've already graded half of it. And I go and I look like in my cache file and I go and I look in like, not the proxy file, but like uh, the different locations where all the library stuff and like my DaVinci Resolve library is still like 20, 50 kilobytes. And crazy. Uh, like I look at my original media folder and it's still the size that it was before. And I yeah. go look in like the cache folder and it's not any bigger. And like, I'm not running out of space. I'm like, where, where is it putting all the render files? And I guess it's not rendering really, or it doesn't have to. It's interesting. Cause I mean, I, I have a one terabyte hard drive and I've just been feeling like I want as much hard drive space as I can get. because I'm constantly running out. But I mean, that makes it seem like if I use resolve, that wouldn't be as much of a problem. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a, it's been pretty cool discovery for me of this, that like it's not going to generate a terabyte of mm-hmm. rendered files when I'm working on this stuff. And I do think like the last two projects that I worked on, like resolve feels like it's still like it's optimized really well for the Apple hardware. Still not quite the level that final cut is. Well, like, I get slightly smoother playback, but like point is, I've had as a result have had to or have chosen to use proxies because of how easy it is to use mm-hmm. proxies in DaVinci Resolve. Mm-hmm. Boy, is this software great. <laughs> like, so I the last two products I'm using ProRes proxy, which is smaller, lighter. Right. And so like if I was going to render these files out, it's going to render it to ProRes anyway. So maybe that's why it's not creating render files maybe is because so. half of the stuff is in ProRes. Well, and I was going to ask, I, I feel like when you've shown me things in Resolve, like when you're in the editor and you wanted to show me a clip that you're working on, it feels like it doesn't always play back smoothly. No, it and doesn't. I feel like that's worse than it was in Final Cut, whereas Final Cut like almost never seemed like it really struggled. And so that that's making me wonder if that's the trade-off you're making. I, I 100% think it is. Like for like I like I did that you know motion motion tracking and then some text behind and like two clips layered or whatever 
And I, I wish it would play back smoother because I'm already playing those back at quarter resolution with proxy files. And it's like drop frame, drop frame, drop yeah. frame. And I really need that whole sequence to render. Mm-hmm. But like it just, it just isn't doing it. Like I would think that, you know, I'm used to Final Cut just straight up, you know, oh, you did a thing. I'm going to render it. Yeah. And in Resolve, it's almost like you have to set it to user render. And then I would have had to pick those clips and then force it to render. Yeah. But uh, you can't force a user render when you have smart render turned on. You have to be in one mode or the other. That's kind of annoying. It is a little annoying because there has been some cases where I'm like, I would like these four clips right here where they interface to render so that I can watch my title and make sure that it works. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I guess that is a trade off, but the trade off is that um, I have 120 gigs free right now on my computer because I have three active projects that yeah. I have files for. Jeez, that sounds and, nice. <laughs> and I'm not worried. Yeah. Versus if I was in Final Cut, I'd be like, I need to clear out 300 gigs of my hard drive or else yeah. I'm not going to be able to finish this thing when it does the final render. It's a, a big difference between those uh, those softwares. Yeah, so I just I thought that might be relevant for you as you're, as you're kind of diving into it. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Boy, do we have time for one more segment, Daniel? No, no, we don't. We don't? <laughs> we're, oh, we're at an hour right now. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you really want to? Yes, I'm going to do one more segment. All right. One more, Daniel. This is it. All Last right. thing. I'm, I, wanna, I want to uh, premiere a new... Uh, segment on our podcast but but we just talked about resolve you can't premiere a new segment <laughs> okay this is called lucas's legendary lens oh crap i didn't think about this no no what's it wouldn't be a corner would it be a, a layer sounds too devious mm. L- is there like a porch something that starts with an L? like a gazebo a luzzybo <laughs> Might have to workshop this thing right, a little bit. We're going to work on it. Lucas's legendary lens, L word. And what I want to talk about today is everyone's favorite camera brand, Nikon. <laughs> Nikon cast. Hey, have you heard? <laughs> we're really hitting it today, Daniel. <laughs> We've talked about Fuji for an hour, and now we're talking about Nikon. We talked about Resolve a little bit. Yep. Just perfect. All the highlights. Just on the nose. I complain about full frame. Golly, it's like a, we're a type. We need a bingo bingo card. <laughs> okay. Have you ever heard of the Noct? No, I don't think I have. Okay. It's an icon, so of course I haven't. Well, obviously. Okay, so in 1977, picture this. Was that the year Star Wars came out? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Could have been 70. No. Yeah. 78. Star Wars shot on Super 35. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> full circle. Uh, whenever you... Like Nikon made a 50 millimeter f 1.2 lens back then, but problem part of the problem uh, with shooting at you know that quick of lens and like you know as it's less of a problem now. But you get this thing called um, here we go. I've been practicing sagittal coma flare. That's is, a, that sounds like a medical condition. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, and basically, it's like if you're shooting fine lights like Christmas lights, or you have lights that are out of focus, instead of being beautiful bokeh balls. They look like um, like birds almost. Hmm. And I put a picture here and maybe I'm going to put it in the show notes, but I probably won't. So everyone just go look up Sagittal Coma Flare, but make sure you have Safe Search on. Yes. Yes. Very important. Yes. Don't do that when it work. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> but basically like the, the right in, within the lens itself, like where it breaks as far as like the bending of the cone or the bending of the glass, uh, it can create like certain problems whenever you shoot super 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 wide okay and so for this first lens that was like 1.2 you know not first but like for this film 50 millimeter 1.2 it wasn't great shooting it wide open and shooting directly into light so if you're shooting at night where you want to shoot a bunch of lights 
it's a problem. Yeah. And so what Nikon did is they came out with the Noct, which even now, 40 years later, 50 years later, they're like $3,500 used. Wow. Yeah. And so the this lens was, it's 1.2, but it's called the Noct because nocturnal or no, nocturne. And the idea was like, this lens is meant to shoot in the dark. And it's like a nighttime, dark night, whatever photography lens. I could say dark and night like 10 more times. Yeah, yeah. Nocturnal. And it's a big deal lens. It was a limited production run. The It was very hard to make. And it's like, just, just, you know, super cool because it's very bespoke and it's really, really good. And it's really, really fast. And it's a pretty cool lens. Yeah. So, it's, it's neat that they did something kind of niche like that. I mean, do you, do you know what was different about it? Like how, how it pulled that off? Uh, I have read about it in two different articles and I still don't understand it. I guess that's why you're not a uh, optics engineer. It's, it really, it really gets into <laughs> like diffraction and all this mm. stuff. And I'm like, oh boy, this is cool, but I don't get it. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of how I know Canon does, maybe Sony does too, make cameras that are like specifically uh, astrophotography versions of the cameras. And it's kind of a similar idea where like you're taking something instead of it being a general purpose, whatever, it's a like made for the specific use case. It's kind of cool. We, we kind of live in a world now where brands will play into nostalgia really hard mm-hmm. and they'll like recycle brands like, you know, Bronco or whatever in order to garner more sales and yeah fuzzy feelings and that sort of thing. Nikon with this fantastic lens, the Noct didn't make another one until a few years back, like really? mid 20, you know, 2015, 2016 timeframe with, with the Z mount series. And whenever they came out with, with the new Noct, it's 58 millimeters manual focus 0.95. Wow. And it is just so fast. So that's 0.95 full frame. Yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's not all focused because of how insane that f-stop is yeah and they have a digital display on the side of the lens that helps you set the distance to your subject so you can get it in focus wow yeah <laughs> they're like we can't make it autofocus, but um we'll try to make this as easy on you as possible <laughs> it's ridiculous yeah guess how much it costs well you said used the old one was 3500 mm-hmm. i'm gonna guess 4500 <laughs> no <laughs> how far off am i Eight thousand dollars. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you're not eight thousand dollars off. It costs eight thousand dollars. Yeah. How 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 heavy is this thing? Uh, I mean, it's like pounds, right? It's. Yeah. Uh, let me let me see if I can find it right. Uh, here. It's a prime, right? You said fifty eight millimeter. Yeah. How heavy? Fifty eight millimeter knocked. It is four and a half pounds. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite a bit. Yeah, really heavy. You're gonna feel that. So I'm mostly here talking about the the old fifty eight millimeter mm-hmm. one point two, but this lens was so legendary and so limited run. That they didn't, they didn't bother coming out and be like, we got another knock. We got another knock because it's yeah. so hard to make. Mm-hmm. And it's so specific for like shooting in the dark and night photography and shooting directly into lights and it looking as perfect as possible with as much, you know, low, as low of an F-stop as possible. I think it's cool that they didn't release a new one until they're like, okay, now we have this new mount, you know, Z mount. Mm-hmm. And the image, the, the image circle is so big and the flange distance is so short we can now improve on this lens that we made yeah. in 1977. <laughs> that is pretty and cool. And then it came out with the new the new Nikon Noct. Yeah, so, that's cool. I think it's pretty cool. So that's uh, this has been Lucas's legendary <laughs> lens. And 
and uh, we'll talk about a different ones next time. Yeah. Oh, I was gonna tease. I was gonna tease the next one. Oh no, this, this one. This one is called. Um, let me let me find it real quick. Boy, I'm I'm really prepared for this. Something for everybody okay. to look forward to. All right, this this uh, segment of Lucas's Len, legendary lens la, la, is uh, knocked. See in the dark. <laughs> next time, we'll be talking about Helios Prime and the Swirly Boys. That sounds like a Transformers something, but I guess we'll guess we'll set the wait till next time. Just have to wait till next time. Yeah. All right. You got anything else today, Lucas? No, I, th- I think I think that's it. You, you think you, you think you've covered enough ground? We've, we've literally covered everything. We talked about Fuji, and we talked about uh, Nikon. <laughs> we, mm. we talked about DaVinci Resolve. I complained about full frame. I mean, I don't. And you pulled out some random lens that nobody's ever heard of. Uh, yeah, that's, exactly. That's perfect. Yeah, that's that's pretty much everything. This is the this is the uh, Fuji Cast. Thank you for oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you for listening to the Camera Gear Podcast. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Play the outro. All right. <laughs> That's it for the show today. Thanks for listening, and we'd encourage you to rate the show on iTunes and tell a friend, but only if you enjoyed it. You can find out more about us on our website at cameragearpodcast.com. We'll be back with more next week.